Take your Bibles, if you would, and uh, open up to Romans uh, chapter 9. The kids are dismissed at this time uh, to Children's Church. Uh, But we're going to be in Romans chapter 9 for the next couple weeks. So we're going to be doing uh, Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. Romans 9, 1 through 5. The Apostle Paul writes this. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all blessed forever. Amen. Let's pray this morning. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you uh, uh, that you watch over us and that you give us your word and that it is indeed well with our soul because of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ and your uh, love for us, Father, by which you sent the Son. And so we praise you for this. We thank you for your plan and your purpose. We pray that your Holy Spirit would attend today uh, and be with us and use the ministry of the word. Uh, Give me uh, the words to say this morning that your scriptures uh, might be clear. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. When I was uh, a young person, maybe about uh, 11 or 12 years old, uh, my parents were raising uh, support to become missionaries, uh, and we typically call that process deputation. Uh, and so you go around from church to church, uh, and you tell them about the ministry that, that you're uh, going to be engaging in, uh, and not too fine a, to put too fine a point on it, but you do kind of ask if they would support you and give you some money. And, of course, you ask for prayer support and all of those other things. Uh, and, of course, everybody loves when missionaries come, and everybody loves when they bring the kids uh, and show off the kids. And everybody goes, oh, how cute, what such little kids, and you're going to the mission field with them. Uh, I got roped into regularly singing a song. Yeah, uh, it was a solo, and uh, it's probably one of the rare times in my life where I've ever sung solos. And if you ask me today to do it, the answer will most likely be no, absolutely not. Uh, the song that we would always end up singing is uh, People Need the Lord. It's a, it's a Steve Green song, if you're familiar with it, uh, but, but there for a while in the mid-80s and early 90s, you, you sang it at every single mission rally. And so uh, not only did we sing it at mission rallies, but I ended up singing it like ev- almost, it felt like every time we went somewhere. It wasn't every time, but anytime they gave us an extended period to talk, and it's like, oh, and now we're going to have Tim come, and he's going to sing a song for us about, about why we're going to become missionaries. And, and, and of course, you know, I'm not, I'm not mocking the lyrics at all. It, it is so true. People need the Lord. And part of it we sing, you know, when will we realize that people need uh, the Lord? And it talks about the hardship that people have and why they need the Lord. And one of the, the lines in the song is this. Through his love, our hearts can feel all the grief they bear. They must hear the words of life only we can share. And then it goes into the chorus, and I'm not going to sing it for you, but it goes into the chorus. People need the Lord. People need the Lord. When will we realize uh, that people need the Lord? We're in a passage of Scripture today where we are reminded not only that people need the Lord, but we are to have a heart and compassion 
for those who need the Lord. We should feel something about this. We should desire people to know who Jesus is. What's fascinating about this five, these five verses of Scripture, this section, is it starts off a very important chapter in the book of Romans. It starts off a very hard and difficult chapter in the book of Romans. And we're going to get into it in the next coming weeks. Uh, Romans chapter 9 deals with the sovereignty of God and what the Bible says about this concept or doctrine that the Bible teaches on election. And it can be hard and it can be difficult and we wrestle with it. But what you need to see today is that Paul starts this passage off. The word of God starts off this hard doctrine with we need to have a concern and a passion for the lost. And so often in our day and age, as we talk about doctrine or we talk about some of these difficult doctrines, we we talk about them from our concerns, from our worries, from our our doubts that God can actually do this. And we sometimes think that if we hold to this doctrine, we are not going to have a passion for the lost. And so sometimes what we do is we make a sort of either or choice. Either you believe that we should evangelize and we should love the lost and we should care for them or you believe in the doctrines of the sovereignty of God or election. The Bible never lets us make that choice. We are never to have that sort of dichotomy. Is God sovereign and in control? Yes, absolutely. But should we have a compassion for the lost? Yes, absolutely. Does God have a care and concern for the lost? Yes, absolutely. So our main point this morning is desire people to know who Jesus is. And almost as a, as a way of introducing this, I'm tempted to say anybody that's not here this week and is here next week, uh, it's, it's going to be like you got to go back and listen to last week's. I, I won't make them leave until they listen to last week's. But I, but I want you to see that that these things flow together and Paul's heart and, and the heart of the word of God flows together in these matters. Desire people to know who Jesus is. So I want to ask the first this morning this question. Is my desire to have people know who Jesus is so deep that I'd be willing to sacrifice myself for them? How deep is my desire that people might know who Jesus is? So what I want you to see here is Paul starts out in verse one, vowing something before God for what he is going to say. Look at verse one. I am speaking the truth. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. Now, what Paul wants to do here is he's setting up what he's going to say in verses two and three. And what he wants you to know is that he is not speaking in hyperbole. Sometimes as preachers, we, we get going, you know, and we say something and we're, we're being a bit hyperbolous. We're we're exaggerating uh, to make a point. So we say things in an extreme way so that you will say, oh, OK, that's what he means. But you understand we're speaking in hyperbole. So, for example, if your kids come up to you at the dinner table and they say to you, I am so hungry, I could eat a horse. 
do you take them literally in that? You know, oh, okay, well, you know, I didn't make any horses today. Or, oh, you can't eat horses. That's so mean to the horse. No, you understand it's hyperbole. You understand you're, you're saying something for effect. Something like, you know, it's raining cats and dogs. Or someone might say, if the Eagles don't win the Super Bowl, I'm going to die. Well, if you mean that literally, you probably ought to just get used to dying. They, they have not won a Super Bowl in a long time. But the Bible uses hyperbole. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 28. The cities are great and walled up to heaven. Speaking about all the cities that were in the land. Now, were they literally like all the way up into heaven, into outer space and far beyond? No, it's a figure of speech to say they're super high. Uh, also, Jesus uses hyperbole. Matthew 23, verse 24. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. Are the Pharisees literally swallowing camels? Uh, are they literally straining out gnats? No, but it's a figure of speech to say they're majoring on the minors and minoring on the majors, as we might say in the common English idiom. The point is this. Paul wants you to know he's not speaking in hyperbole. He takes, uh, in a sense, an oath to say, I am not exaggerating here what I am about to say. He calls Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit as witnesses. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. Now, if Paul was merely exaggerating in the few next few verses or he really didn't mean it to the depths that he actually says it, then this would be taking God's name in vain. But he means it and he wants you to know that he means it. He's he's deadly serious here. The, the depths of passion and compassion that he has for the lost as he describes it he wants you to know he's not just making it up he's not just speaking in hyperbole so paul has incredible sorrow and anguish for those who do not believe in jesus look at verse two for i could wish that I myself, or sorry, that's verse three. Look at verse two. Uh, that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. This is how he feels for the lost. This is how he feels for his fellow Jewish people, people who have the Old Testament, the Word of God, who are hearing the Word of God as he teaches in synagogues, who are reading it who he's telling, hey, you need to believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And they're rejecting and they're not responding. Paul says, I have sorrow because these people aren't believing. I am in anguish because I want them to come to know who Jesus is. Sorrow here means kind of a, a pain and an anguish in your heart where, where it aches, where it, where it hurts where you might be crying. This is, this is not just a general sadness. This is not just a, oh, well, that kind of hurt my feelings that they're not responding to the gospel. And this is, this is just one of those, you ever see in the, in the, the Middle East where, where people lament? 
You ever see, particularly when when women in that culture lose a a child and they're walking someone and they're carrying a a funeral, uh, they're carrying a coffin to a funeral and and people are wailing and people are crying and and they don't just they're not good Pennsylvania Dutch where you just bury how you feel and you don't express it. They're just they're emotional and they emote over this. This is how Paul feels. This is this is Paul, not just in a cold, calm, calculated way saying, well, you know, I wish these people would believe in Jesus. Oh, I wish they would believe they know these things. They should know these things. They've seen him in Scripture. He describes this same word, great sorrow, the word sorrow. He often describes it as a pain. The word can be used both as speaking of external and internal things. Um, but he describes visiting the Corinthians. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. Same word there, a sorrowful visit, a a visit that causes great emotional turmoil. Uh, How would you like it if the Apostle Paul came to your church or to our church and he he laid out a bunch of things that we did wrong? You you would feel like a kid being called into the principal's office. Did you did you ever get in trouble and, and you feel so guilty about how what you did that you just start crying and then sometimes maybe as a parent or a teacher or principal, you're like, oh, calm, calm down. Well, it's not that bad. OK, we can work through this. Uh, this Paul doesn't want their their visit to be that kind of pain that, that that he has some hard things to say and they get emotionally worked up and they are overwhelmed with sorrow. And it's just so hard for them to deal with it. Second Corinthians two, three, he said, for I wrote you as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. So so he doesn't want to feel the, the emotional turmoil and the stress and the weighing me and the oh all oh, these people in the church, they're living in such sin and it hurts. And I'm oh, I have such passion that they would walk with God. Second Corinthians two, seven, he says of, of someone who had been repenting of sin, he says to the believers, so you should rather turn and forgive and comfort him. Or he may be overwhelmed by sorrow. So here's someone under such conviction, such, oh, I've sinned against God that they they just feel like they can't even get out of bed and their heart aches and they're in such burden and pain. And and Paul says, you know, okay, you you told them where they were wrong. Now, now go and comfort them because they're repentant and draw them back to God. All of these describe sorrow. First Corinthians or Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11, for for the moment of all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, the, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. That word painful is the same word that Paul uses here for sorrow. The point is this. This is a very emotional experience for Paul. Paul loves the lost. And he sees people that are basically his extended family, part of his Jewish heritage, his brothers and sisters, he says, according to the flesh. And and he's worked up about it. Oh, if they would just come and see that Jesus is the Messiah. And and he's just bubbling over in anguish and in pain. This same language here, unceasing anguish in my heart, it it describes sometimes physical pain, but here mental distress where it's just weighing on you, where, where you almost can't function because it just overwhelms you with a flood of emotions. 
Um, Exodus chapter 3, verse 7, when they translated it from Hebrew to Greek, uh, it reads this way. The Lord said to Moses, when I looked, I saw the afflictions of my people in Egypt. I have heard their cry on account of the taskmasters, for I know their pain. And it's that same when they translated from the Hebrew to the Greek, uh, so for the Greek readers so they could read the Old Testament, that word there, I know their pain, is the same word that Paul says, I have anguish in my heart. They had this overwhelming distress. God, you've got to save us from these Egyptians. We're slaves. We're being beat up. And you can imagine if you've ever had anything that you've just cried out to God for in prayer. You can imagine how it works you up emotionally. How maybe you don't get a good night's sleep. You toss and you turn and, and you wake up in the morning and it's the first thing on your mind and you don't feel like you've rested and your body starts to maybe ache and hurt and, and, and just because you've got all this anguish. And Paul is saying, that's how I feel for the lost. Psalm 12, 3, until when I ho- oh, yeah, until when shall I hold the counsels in my soul, have pains in my heart by day? How long shall my enemy exalted over me? So again, this description of this anguish in the heart, sorrow, distress, anguish. Uh, we should assume that Paul, on more than one occasion, has shed tears for the lost cried out to God and said, Lord, please save people. Cause your word to be effective. This was not some cold calculated, oh yes, I know that they're lost and they need the gospel. This was an emotion that sank deep into his soul. People need the Lord. Paul's emotions are so intense that he almost wishes he could go to hell in their place for the lost Jewish brothers and sisters. Look at this in verse 3. And this is why Paul has prefaced this by saying, I really mean this. I'm not lying. I'm not speaking here in hyperbole. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and, and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul isn't just exaggerating. Now, he knows that it's humanly and physically and divinely impossible that that Paul, a human being, could be cursed to hell for the sake of other people. But he says, oh, I could wish it. It's kind of like saying, if only it was possible. This is how much I love my brothers and sisters in the flesh. This language of a curse is the same word that Paul uses in Galatians when he rebukes people that don't have the true gospel. Galatians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. And we have said before, now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be accursed. Paul says in that scenario, if somebody's preaching a false gospel, that is cursed. Get those people out. 
Let him be a curse. Remove him from the church. Don't let that preacher stand in front of you. And even if it's an angel coming to you and saying, hey, not that Jesus died on the cross, but this is how you get saved. Paul says, don't believe him. Don't trust them. Get them out. They're accursed. And now Paul says in Romans, oh, if only I could be cursed for these people. If only I could be cut off from the Lord that that some of them or all of them might get saved. He's saying, in effect, if only I could take their place and save them, I'd be willing, if it were possible, to go to hell for them. It's kind of ironic. You need to understand the context of this. Paul has just said in verses 35 and 39 that nothing, verse 39, nothing can separate us from Christ's love. Romans 8:35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And he goes on, neither height nor depth nor angels or principalities, nothing can cut you off from the love of God in Christ. And we talked about that last week. But here Paul is saying, oh, if only I could. I submit to you that Paul has a Christ-like love for his Jewish brothers and sisters. Jesus Christ did bear the curse of our sins. When he was hanging on the cross, he bore and suffered the wrath of God for sin. All the punishment that we deserve to suffer in hell And we will suffer in hell if we do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. All the punishment of hell that our sins deserve is poured out onto Jesus in those hours on the cross. He bears it by dying. Cursed is the one that hangs on a tree, Scripture says. That it's a a curse by God. It's to be cut off from God. As you know, Jesus cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God so loved the world that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And Paul says, I love these people that are sinners. I love these people that are lost, that are rebelling against God, that are rejecting Oh, I so want them to come to saving faith. I wish if only, if only I could take their place. There's another example of this actually in Scripture. Remember the people of God when Moses is up on the mountain and they come to Aaron and they say, you know, Moses has been gone a long time. Uh, why don't we make an idol? And Aaron says, well, you know, OK, yeah, bring me your gold and fashions this idol. And of course, you know, remember how Moses comes back down off the mountain? Like, what are you doing, Aaron? And, and Moses is like, well, I just threw this stuff in a pot and up jumped the idol. I don't know. Remember how angry God gets and he's ready to destroy the people of God. And Moses says, I'm going to go back on the mountain and pray for you. I'm going to go intercede. And in Exodus 32, starting in verse 31, it says this. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, 
He's pleading with God, if you will forgive their sin. And then he says this, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord says to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Moses is an example here, a type here of Christ being willing to suffer for the people. Save them, but let the punishment come on me. I'll take it. I don't know if Moses totally understands all that he's asking and all that would entail. But the point is this. He has such a heart for God's people that he would say to God, blot me out from the book of life where my name is written. Cross out my name, as it were. But don't bring judgment upon these people. Paul is doing the exact same thing. That brings us to this question this morning. What does my love for the lost look like? What does my love for the lost look like? Do I pray for those who are lost, for the unsaved? Do I pray that they might be saved? Is it a casual praying? Sometimes in my life, you just have this list and you just kind of read down through the names and you say, hey, please save them. Or is it prayers that lead to tears, that lead to anguish, that lead to sorrow? Most of us would never dream of wishing to suffer in hell for the sake of someone else. I got to be honest, I don't know that I would ever say that of anyone, that I'll take their place. Paul's saying, if only I could. He has that kind of love for the lost. So often we are so timid, so fearful. Paul is willing to say, hey, I'd even go to hell if I could for them. And yet sometimes we're just so afraid even just to, to go up to someone and talk to them. To say, hey, has, do you know that, that Jesus Christ died on the cross? Do you know that you can be saved? Do you, have you ever heard the gospel? We have good news. Do you know why I go to church on Sunday? Do you know what I really believe? Do you know that this is for you? If you would just believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you can be saved. Paul has such anguish. And even in my own life, we have such fear. Such timidness. And sometimes we just chalk it up and we just say, well, God will do his purposes. God will absolutely do his purposes. But part of the purpose and the plan of God is that God's people would pray. And that God's people would evangelize. And that God's people would have a love for the lost. If God so loved us while we were sinners that he sent Christ to die for us, don't you think that we who have been brought from death in our sins to life can love the sinner and pray and have anguish? You don't have to worry because God will accomplish his purposes, but we should have a burden for the lost. Paul will go on in this passage and he'll talk about the doctrine of God's sovereignty and God's work in election. But notice this, as we've been saying, he does it with a heart that desires the lost 
to be saved. God's sovereignty does not mean that we do not care about the lost. And we shouldn't just say, well, yes, of course I care about the lost. Paul cares about the lost. God's sovereignty doesn't mean we shouldn't pray or evangelize. Sometimes we're tempted to say, why should I plead with God? God desires us to love the lost. God delights when when we come before the throne of grace and we ask him to do what only he can do. Lord, please save people. You ask God, please save them, work in their hearts, open their eyes, bring them to faith. Let them put their trust in you. There is a mystery to the doctrine of election. There are things that we don't fully understand. But we do know this. We are called to pray and pray with passion that God would do amazing things. And God delights in making his name known. And God delights in saving sinners. God delighted in saving you. Who are you to think that you shouldn't care for the lost? If you want to read a little book on some of this balance, J.I. Packer has a good little book called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. I think it's in its second or third edition now. It's just a, a very thin little book. It's a classic. But it's a wonderful thing to wrestle through some of these things. And I would say to you, not only does Paul have a passion for the lost, but he describes himself as having a sacrificial ministry for the lost. He says this in 2 Timothy 2.10, Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul knows that God has a plan. And so he prays. And he has a love for the lost and he has a passion for them. And he says, I endure all things because I know God will save people. And it's not a waste to go and be a missionary. It's not a waste to give up your retirement and say, I'm going to go and evangelize. It's not a waste to stay up late in tears, crying and asking that God would save someone. That God would work. That the gospel would be effective. Paul says, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. He says here that he wishes he could be cut off from Christ if others could be saved. Second, this morning, people need to know Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises and God in the flesh. Notice one of the reasons that Paul is so passionate about Jewish evangelism. They had the word of God. They they were special in the eyes of God. To what other nation did God do all of these great things that he did? Look at verse four. They are Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. Romans three, one and two. What advantage has the Jew or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted the oracles of God. God's people, the Israelites, 
had the Bible, the Old Testament. God entrusted it to them. The nations were supposed to come to them to find out about God. But this was significant that God gave the Bible to them and made the promises to them. In Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, again, as God is going to call his people out of Egypt, he says to Moses, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Why does God spare Israel? Because he's made them his children. He's adopted them. He doesn't save the Egyptians. The Egyptians are the ones living in sin and Israel is there under oppression. And God says, I'm going to save them because they're my children. I made a covenant promise to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. I'm going to bring them out and bring them to the promised land. Did God care about the other nations in the Old Testament? Yeah, absolutely. His design was that when Israel was being who she was supposed to be, they would other nations would see how great God is and come and believe and worship. But the point is this. Israel was special. The firstborn son, Hosea 11, 1, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Exodus 19, 5 and 6. Now, therefore, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples for all the earth is mine. And you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So Paul says the covenants are theirs. He's thinking of the covenants made to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Mount Sinai is where a covenant was made. He also says in this passage, the law was given to them. That's at Mount Sinai, the covenant of the law. They're given the oracles of God, as we already said from Romans 3.2. Uh, what other nation has this from God? They, they got the tabernacle, the temple. Paul even says they have the glory. You remember how the cloud of glory came down and guided them by night. And then when they made the tabernacle, God's presence of glory just sat right down into it in their midst. What did all the other nations have? Just pagan idols. What did Israel have? The glory of God in their midst. You see why Paul is so passionate about them coming to saving faith? Look at all that God had done throughout the history of the Old Testament. And now the Messiah, the very person that was promised in the Old Testament, he's literally come right on their doorstep and he was crucified and rose again. And the promised forgiveness of sin of the new covenant is here. And Paul is saying, but my people have missed it. Oh, that they would turn. Oh, that they would turn. We sometimes get carried away in America saying America is a Christian nation. I don't really want to debate that topic. Do we have Christian heritage in the past? Yeah, absolutely. But we're not a special nation like Israel was. That's about as far as I'll debate that with you. But we do have this rich heritage. And you look at our country today. And you just look at how many people don't know the gospel. And look at how many churches 
And I'm not trying to point my finger at anybody special or specific. But look at how many churches don't preach the Word of God. Don't minister the Gospel. I mean just the very basics. That Jesus Christ died on the cross. That salvation is through faith alone. That you need to believe in Jesus and He is the only way to heaven. We should have a heart for all the lost. But think about how Paul has a heart for his people. And think, do I have a heart for our countrymen? For our brothers and sisters in the flesh who have a common creed under the laws of America. And yet are lost in darkness. By the way, don't let that dissuade you from foreign missions. Have a burden for people overseas who have never heard the Word of God. We have such an embarrassment of riches in America. Just the amount of access we have to Bibles is unbelievable. My daughter the other day was just teasing me when she walked into my office that I not only had the small Bible open, I had the big Bible. And there are people that have never heard the Word of God. And so we have a passion for them. That we would say that God wants to take this Gospel to the world. And they need to hear it too. And we're not better than them because we're in America. Because we have some Christian heritage in our background. Are we broken? Lastly, look at just verse 5. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. I was going to talk about the patriarchs and from their race, and you can go a lot into the Old Testament there uh, with all of this. It would end up being a sermon through the whole Old Testament if we dug it all out. But notice what Paul says. From them, according to the flesh, is the Christ. Christ is a title. It means Messiah. It means anointed one. Jesus Christ, it's not Jesus is his first name and Christ is his last name. I hope you, I hope you know that. Christ is the title, the Messiah, the one promised in the Old Testament. But then he says that the Christ, we're talking about Jesus, who is God over all? Who is Jesus? Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the one who came to earth, born in the flesh, suffered and died on the cross. But who is Jesus? He is the eternal Son of God. So that we worship Him and call Him God. This language here of God over all, there's some phrases in the Old Testament where only God, Jehovah, Yahweh, the divine name of God, only the living and true God, is over all things. And Paul says that about Jesus. He worships Jesus here. He pronounces that Jesus is blessed forever. Again, in the Psalms, this is titles, this is descriptions that go only to the living and true God. That Jesus the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Paul breaks into doxology here 
and he gives a little bit of worship and these few lines to Jesus. And when I say little bit, I mean, it's just a it's a, almost a side note is what he's saying. He's saying, yeah, yeah, they have all this stuff as Jews. We have all this heritage and the Christ comes from the line of Israel and Jesus is God. Amen. Israel missed the working of their own God. Yahweh from the Old Testament reveals himself to be one God, yet three persons, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And the second person of the Trinity showed right up and walked among them and they missed it. Jesus Christ came to save sinners, Paul says, of which I am the worst, Paul says. And he says that's a trustworthy saying, meaning we should all think that way about ourselves. Do I have a heart for the lost? Do I want people to know who Jesus is? If you do not believe that Jesus is the Son of God, truly God, you will not be saved. And people need to know that. And we need in our own midst to reaffirm that, not just take it for granted. We need to have a heart for the lost. I want to close this morning and I want to read uh, an incident that was written down in a book. It's a true story, and I don't want to pretend that I'm trying to tell it as my own. So I just want to read that this. This is by a writer, uh, D.A. Carson. You You may have heard the name before. He says this, Paul could wish himself accursed for those of his own race. Romans 9, 3. Then he tells, then D.A. Carson writes this story. A few years ago, on a talk, a radio talk show with a large audience in Chicago, the host asked several guests to discuss whether anyone could be saved apart from Jesus. Three poo-pooed the idea in graphic terms. And if you know who D.A. Carson is, it's so funny that he writes the words poo-pooed in here because he's a, he's a brilliant scholar. Three poo-pooed the idea in graphic terms. The fourth was a Jewish Christian believer on the faculty of Moody Bible Institute. His ethnic background was known by everyone there. So that when it was his turn to speak, the host baited him by asking him if he thought his fellow Jews could be saved apart from Christ. The Christian brother began to weep and then sob quietly, uncontrollably. After a minute or two, the host said that he had never heard a more compelling reason to become a Christian. Look at my own life. Do I have that kind of love for the lost? Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we ask that you would work in our hearts. We all know someone, maybe many people, that aren't saved. And we go about our days in such a casual way. And we love them. We certainly 
have a heart for them. And yet, Lord, we can be so complacent, so lackadaisical, such procrastinators. I'll talk to them tomorrow. I'll wait till the time is right. Oh, Lord, give us a love for the lost. Give us a courage, a boldness, because we know that in your plans and purposes, you save those who are lost and dead in sin. It is your work. But you give us the privilege of being involved, of serving you, of being a light. Lord, let us have a love for sinners. May it be reflected in our lives. May it be reflected in the life of this church body. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.